I wasn't listening to the guidance of light. And if you don't listen to this voice for long enough, it will start to talk a little louder. And then eventually it'll start to shout. And then eventually it'll manifest in your life in a very intense kind of way. Hello, yogis, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 33 with Daniel Rama. Now, I apologize for the nasally congestive tone of my voice. I just came back from a very fast-paced weekend of travel in and out of Miami just like that, and although I'm feeling a little sick, it was totally worth it. Um, Can't wait to go back there again. Thank you to Original Hot Yoga 305 for hosting me and Veronica. It was super fun. Um, Also, before we get into the episode, I want to shout out to Jennifer Galindo for making a donation to Dharma Talk. Every time one of you does that, it makes me so happy, not only because I appreciate the financial contribution, it definitely helps, but just because it lets me know that you guys really value what I'm doing and you know that really keeps me going so thank you so much Jennifer if anyone else would like to make a donation you can always do that on my website henrywins.com or you can also get there dharmatalk.show now about Daniel Rama you may have seen him on the internet on Instagram he posts some really beautiful pictures of handstanding and all sorts of difficult asana but we actually talk about that on this interview and he says that he got into handstanding practice because he knew it was important to have a visually appealing yoga practice to draw people in and share deeper more impactful lessons of yoga so naturally we get into all of that too We talk about the two fundamentally life-altering lessons that he learned during his first two weeks living at the Shivananda Ashram. We talk about what stories, mythology, and poetic language can teach us about ourselves and the philosophy of life, as he calls it. You'll learn how feeling totally and utterly alone set Rama up to receive the teachings of yoga and why Rama changed his mind about the practice of brahmacharya. Very contentious issue. Very contentious practice in traditional yoga. And how partnership has expanded his consciousness and joy. So, I'm excited for you to check out this interview. We'll dive right into it after these announcements. Yogis, I've got a couple more workshops coming up this fall that I hope you can join me for. If you live in New York, there are two installments left in my Backbending for Health and Joy workshop series. That takes place at Yoga and Fitness Herald Square in Manhattan. I'm also headed down to Virginia, to my hometown of Richmond with my wife, Veronica Lombo. We're going to be teaching together back-to-back workshops at Hot Yoga Richmond, and I'll be teaching a series of classes and workshops myself at the Yoga Dojo. Details for all these events in New York and Virginia are on my website, henrywins.com slash events. Go there and sign up. At Lighthouse Yoga School in Brooklyn, New York, we are currently enrolling our next 200-hour teacher training for January 2019. So yoga teachers looking to level up your teaching, aspiring yoga teachers who want to do your first training, or yoga students who just want to take their practice a little bit deeper. You can get more information about that also at henrywins.com slash events. And if you apply now using my referral code henrywins, you'll save $100 on your tuition. There's no fee to apply, so go ahead, put your application in, drop the referral code, and lock in $100 off. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode Today, I've got Daniel Rama as my guest. 
born of a background of functional anatomy and blessed by the good fortune of maturing in a traditional Hatha yoga ashram. International yoga teacher Daniel Rama is known for bringing a powerful balance of both new and old. His story is one of turning tremendous pain and suffering into opportunity for powerful personal transformation. Through a series of what he calls, quote, at first unfortunate events, the problem child born with the name Daniel de France became Daniel Rama, teacher of teachers. Daniel, I'm excited to have you on here today. What's up? How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Henry. Thank you so much for having me. You know, seriously, it's my my pleasure, um, and I feel um, pretty blessed and fortunate myself that I was able to catch you in between a lot of travel. I know that you just landed in Cairo, Egypt. Um, what brought you there? Yes, uh, I was brought to Cairo by some former students of mine. They they met me in Peru, and they very very much enjoyed the teaching and. It sounds like this will be the first program of its kind being offered in Egypt. So it's very much an up-and-coming area for the practice of yoga. Uh, still many, many men are not so much adopting it yet. It's very mm -hmm. much still a practice for women. But hopefully that's one thing that, that I can help remedy in the area. Definitely, yeah. We male yoga <laughs> teachers have, have a burden to bear, is that right? Um, Absolutely. You know, I always start these conversations with the same first question, so I don't want to skip that, but I do want to hear more about this program that you're doing in Cairo. First, what does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today? Well, dharma, you hear one of my favorite stories reading in the ashram is, of course, the Ramayana, the book of Lord Rama. And Rama, he is essentially the depiction of Dharma. It doesn't matter so much what happens in his life. He has all of these very negative experiences, also positive ones. But the thing about Rama is that he never once faltered from what is his Dharma. He always stayed true to who he was and what his role was, what his purpose was in this world. So Dharma is quite simply staying authentic to who you are and what you are here to do. Right. And so what is your dharma, at least as you understand it now? My dharma. Yeah, my dharma is to share. Um, whether or not that's always in the context of yoga doesn't necessarily concern me. Mm -hmm. If there was some better way to share and help other individuals, I would most certainly put my efforts into that avenue. But for me, right now, where I am, it's teaching yoga, primarily more physical yoga asanas, and adding in these subtleties of the practice as well. So for as long as I care to remember, it's always been about sharing in this context. And you must, it seems that you must identify with that story or at least with Rama at, at large um, because you've taken on his name. So can you tell us that story? How did that come about? That story was um, shortly after I graduated from my studies, health, wellness, and fitness, studying in university. I decided to move to this ashram. And the reason being was that actually my father, he always used to be an individual whose buttons I was just an absolute expert at pushing. <laughs> I could always make him get so pissed off at any little thing. He was basically wrapped around my finger in this way. But then he and my mother, they ended up separating when I was 19. And of course, you know, after these types of separations, individuals always seek some form of improvement. So he, at this stage in his life, I don't know, it must have been early 50s, something like this, decided to adopt the practices of yoga. And he went to do his teacher training at this ashram, ashram in the Bahamas. And he spent 28 days. And then when he got back, as hard as I would try, there was absolutely no buttons to be found. 
no way that I could get him pissed off. So it was a tremendous transformation. And for me, I was just very curious. So I went to this place, and for me, 28 days turned into the better part of two years. And at some point along that process, the Swami, the spiritual coordinator at the ashram, he gave the opportunity to become initiated into a spiritual life, which you can think in a way is kind of like the sacrament of confirmation. You are becoming confirmed into a specific style of living. And so the process of attaining, receiving a spiritual name, it's more so something to aim for, uh, something kind of like a rebirth. And prior to this experience for me, if I might be so blunt, uh, I was a bit of an asshole, basically. I was not such a nice person, to be honest. And uh, afterwards, this name, Rama, you know, when you say some kind of name, it has, of course, some meaning behind it. And for me, the name Daniel, it very much became associated with who I was. And it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with who I was, but these were qualities which I knew would not lead me where I wanted. And so the other name, Rama, this leads me somewhere else. And so for the last many years, the name Rama has been the name that I've identified with. That makes perfect sense. You know, I actually recently spoke to another yoga teacher who took on a, a different name, and she had a similar explanation. Who was, you know, there's nothing wrong with my name, my given name, but here I am setting a new intention for who I want to be and what I want to contribute, so I'll give myself a name that reminds me of that. So I like that a lot. And what about your, um, you know, it's really interesting that your dad went off to do the ashram before you did. What, did, what was his take on you going out there after him and then ending up staying for much longer than you intended? Well, my father, he, um, he was not so supportive of the choices I was making in my life before the ashram for good reason. But then the decision to go to the ashram and everything that I've done after that point in my life, he's supported wholeheartedly. It's basically, you know, before that I was completely a path of self-destruction. And now it's more path of selfless service. So my father, he's always been my biggest support. He still teaches yoga. He does also some Thai yoga massage, some corporate mindfulness. And in a way, he's a very significant advisor for a lot of the programs that I am offering. Just because his philosophy of life, it's very, very clear, very, very logical. There's nothing mystical about it. It's very factual. And being more of a scientific person myself, this I appreciate. And I can clearly see that the students I come into contact with, they appreciate this logic as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you always sort of attract the type of person who sees the world through the same uh, lens as you do as a teacher. You know, there's so many different students out there and so many different teachers. It's only natural for the people who are meant to mesh to to find themselves in the same place. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, we're also challenged by people who see things differently. So. I can tell that that's something that absolutely happened to you when you were at this ashram. You say that you were basically an asshole in your, in your years leading up to that. And then you walked away with this new sense of peace, similar to your father who, whose buttons you can no longer push in that way, which I'm sure was, you know, in part frustrating, but also, wow, okay, there's something here. Is it possible for you to look at a moment in that experience? I know it was two years of time, so a lot went, went by there. But what happened to help you really change your frame of mind? That is an excellent question. And you can say that there are many things leading up to that experience that played a significant role. But in the question of the ashram itself, the main 
learning, to be honest, was done within the first two weeks. Everything after the two weeks was application. It was integration. But you see, I, I came from this place in southern Ontario, and not to badmouth it too much, but there were, there's not so much, uh, it was not so much substance, basically. Everybody was concerned with only a few things, and, you know, I see that changing a little bit now, which is fantastic. But before going to the ashram, you know, I'm reading all these spiritual books and all of this kind of stuff, preparing myself. And I start to think very, very highly of myself. Oh, I have this incredible understanding of life at the time, you know. And I go to the ashram with this mindset where I'm kind of, uh, you know, at that time, my physical practice didn't look anything like it does now. But still, I thought that my physical practice was, oh, so elaborate, very, very good. And so I went to the ashram with this kind of mindset. But in the first week, that mindset was absolutely shattered. It was crushed. I found that I was surrounded by all of these incredible beings, people that just possessed so much happiness. It didn't make any sense to me. And I realized that everything I think I know, actually I know absolutely nothing about myself, about my life, about this process and this practice. Absolutely nothing. So that first very vital realization was simply that the chalkboard, it's actually blank. I thought it was quite full, but it's actually totally blank. And from there, we're able to grow. We're able to learn. So the first was knowing that I know nothing. The second, coming in the second week, the ashram where I was staying, you know, it is very traditional. Going there, I'd not experienced kirtan or uh, like traditional yogic ceremony. And of course, they have these daily pujas where, you know, you're offering some incense and flowers and a waving of the flame and all of these things where I saw at first. And, you know, I, I thought these people were absolutely ridiculous, to be honest. You know, I kind of wanted to leave. Um, but in the second week, there was this strange moment where at the end of a satsang, at the end of a gathering, the end of a meditation, you can say, um, there's this period where everyone bows to the altar. And before I saw this bowing as being, again, something so incredibly ridiculous, why would I ever bow to this, you know, elephant looking statue thing and then at some point in the second week I felt my knees go and I felt myself touch the floor and it was a tremendously humbling moment where I knew that I'm not bowing to this statue per se but I'm simply stating that this life there are things far more important than me. That, that my life should be lived for service to something higher. So those were the two fundamental realizations. That I know nothing and that it's all about humility. And from there, we've been able to add many, many things up to date. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is the foundation, right? Upon a blank slate and an attitude of service, you can really, you can provide anything. So what are those things? What have you started to add on? Those things. So they began very basic yoga classes. And I was not being able to reach quite as many people as I would like to. So I started to notice how important it would be to understand uh, social media and also even the development of my physical practice to be honest I really don't care about handstands uh, in the grand scheme of things to be honest handstands are so small they almost don't even show up on the radar but they're eye-catching and people like them so I learned all that I could about the human body and about how to properly manipulate it and I developed this physical practice 
purely so that students would be able to appreciate, you know, this kind of side. And then they come to some workshops and I start to slip in the things that I see as being very valuable. Uh-huh. So from uh-huh. the classic bait and switch. <laughs> exactly. Yes. You have to play to these kind of strengths and weaknesses of the human condition. <laughs> sure. So from workshops, it came into yoga retreats. And that's, uh, you know, more of a personal get to know me type experience. Some of them are certainly more intense, especially if they are designed around handstands or inversions. But all of these retreats that I'm running, they have very significant elements of classical meditation, of pranayama, of not necessarily yoga philosophy, but of philosophy of life itself, of the mechanics of life, you can say. And then more recently, uh, my partner and I, Shakti Bird, we have been operating our own yoga teacher trainings, 200-hour trainings that we have set for 2019. And these programs we are incredibly excited about. Mm-hmm. Well, before we talk about the teacher training, um, I'd like to hear a little bit about your distinction between yoga philosophy and philosophy of life. What sort of things are you teaching in the context of your yoga retreats and teacher trainings, you know, or classes, whatever? This is the also situation an excellent question. And yeah, so it's important when you talk about yoga philosophy to understand that it started out as one thing, and over the years, it's become something a little bit different than what it began as. So actually, yoga philosophy, it began as a science. It began as a method. And what I find interesting is that if you trace it all the way back to the Vedas, is that the things that they're talking about, these forces of creation, of maintenance, of destruction, these same forces, they're present in quantum mechanics as well. So quantum physics is present day beginning to say the exact same thing that the yogis were saying at least 5,000 years ago. So what happened is basically when you experience something that you have no idea how to share, you tend to revert to something like poetry. Like, for example, um, if I was to try and share with you how much I love my partner, yeah. I would probably have to say something in poetic form or some type of, you know, very articulate story. But if I was to just very logically and very clear-cuttedly tell you about how much I love her, it would sound pretty ridiculous, actually. It wouldn't make so much sense. All of the ways that we explain these things that are profound, it's typically through a poetic form, which if you think like the Bhagavad Gita, all of the scriptures they're written in poetic form because basically they didn't know how to explain it in any other way. And now the nice thing is that present day we have all of these technologies available to us, all of these tools where we're finally being able to test things on a you know subatomic level and start to figure out all these things that the yogis were talking about way back when. And we get to share them in a context that is no longer necessarily poetic but more logical, more factual. So for me, the yoga philosophy, the philosophy of life, is that it's purely in place to teach you about yourself. It's purely in place, not necessarily to just share all of these elaborate stories. And, you know, like, I have many parts of the Ramayana now just memorized. And I think about it although they're very, very valuable stories, in and of themselves, they really don't mean anything. These stories, they're important only because you see that there's an essence, there's a meaning behind the words. And if you can read scriptures uh, between the lines in this way, they're very powerful. But all too often in any kind of religious context, we focus so much on the literal translation of scripture and of sacred texts And we don't understand so much the meaning behind it. So to say it another way, the mechanics of life, the yoga philosophy that we teach in these programs, it is that essential format. It's cutting through all of these kind of things that although are very, very beautiful, 
It's purely information that will help you perceive yourself, your life, as it really is. This is the fundamental thing. I see. Yeah, well, to your point earlier about scriptures and a lot of ancient texts being written in poetic form, well, I think the reason is poetic form can carry so many different meanings at once. And it, that room for interpretation allows you to have an individual experience with it. So you're right. I mean, you can't expect to just go memorize a text from cover to cover and have the secret to life there. But if you can look at it and apply it to your own experience, that's where that's where the gems come out. Mm. Was there a lot of scriptural uh, scriptural study in your time at the ashram and or has that been something that you've applied into your own teaching? At the ashram, there was a fair amount of scriptural study. You know, Svadhyaya is very, very high up. And where the context that I was living is basically I was being groomed for the life of a brahmachari. So I was being groomed for, you know, staying wholeheartedly in that physical space, living dedicatedly in this ashram. That was the direction that I was headed. And as such, uh, many of the decisions as far as what to do with my days, those decisions were not my own. Those decisions were made by my teacher in the ashram. And so I had a very, very dedicated schedule. And there were times where Svadhyaya was a must. And so during those times, I would absolutely have to read something and, you know, I would always, you know, try and sneak away. I still have these samskaras of a very naughty boy, you know, while I was growing up. <laughs> right. But somehow they always knew. The swamis always knew. I had no idea how they always knew. But they knew when I was being bad. So naturally I had to do all these things. And furthermore, there were many, many courses that I would have to take. A course on the Brahma Sutras, a course on the Bhagavad Gita, all of these different kinds of things I would have to study. And then to top it off, you have morning and evening, two different satsangs, which is meditation, chanting of kirtan, and also some type of lecture, which more often than not was scriptural in essence. Uh, there was tons and tons and tons. And for me, listening to all of these things, I was very quick, quickly able to dissect them and figure out what they actually mean. And then after that point, it was kind of like, my ears were just being constantly bombarded with all of this, you know, once you understand it, it becomes, to be honest, a little bit useless. When you already have the, the meaning there, uh -huh. then it starts to lose. It just, I was being bombarded with so much information. So, yeah, this was my experience at the ashram. A lot of information. Right, right. So, yeah, once you've distilled down that essence, some of the stories which are really meant to communicate the same thing in different ways start to feel a bit more redundant. I can see how that, that could get frustrating. Um, is that eventually why you decided to leave the ashram? No, I decided to leave the ashram purely because that was where I was being told to go. Mm -hmm. There's always been this kind of voice figuratively most of the time that uh, speaks about what to do next. And we all hear this voice, but usually it says things that are uncomfortable or difficult, so we argue them. But this voice has been something that if I don't listen to, if I don't listen to it, I will experience tremendous suffering, tremendous suffering. And so more often than not, I listen to the, the voice. You've learned <laughs> at I this point. Learned. I am learning. Yeah. Well, okay. So you mentioned in uh, in the bio that I read off at the beginning of our conversation that you had a series of at first unfortunate events. Can right. you take us back to one or a couple of those, you know, if, if it is a series that tells a story together um, of how they first presented to you and then how they revealed themselves to be something different? Well, to tie it into what I was just saying, sure. these are a series of three events that took place. And 
these three events happened purely because I wasn't listening to the guidance of life. And if you don't listen to this voice for long enough, it will start to talk a little louder. And then eventually it'll start to shout. And then eventually it'll manifest in your life in a very intense kind of way. So the first of these three events was during my time in college. And I was, actually I was drinking at a friend's house during this first experience. And I was going to impress a girl who was there. In a very classical macho guy kind of way, I decided I was going to lift this 200 pound barbell up over my head, do a nice full clean. And uh, naturally I lost balance at the top of this movement and I dropped this weight on top of my left foot. And actually in that moment, I the decision was to put on a very tight fitting shoe. I think I had some Converse at the time. So I tied it up very, very tight. And then we actually went out dancing that night as well. And uh, in the morning, I woke up with my foot just massive, massive and purple. And of course, going to the emergency room, they basically gave me a very grim diet. At the time, I'm studying how to become a personal trainer, and they told me that that life would never happen. Basically, they said I wouldn't be able to run again, and my walking, I would have issues with. So naturally, I took this very hard. And around the same time, the second way was that I moved away from the town that I grew up, which is a place called Waterdown, Ontario. This was where all of my friends were, and I moved about 45 minutes away from that town to a place where I didn't know anyone. I moved there for school. And having this broken foot, moving away to school, it was difficult to meet people, actually. And the third thing that happened was that in the pursuit of trying to meet some people, I decided that I would go every now and again to the pub night at my school, at Mohawk College. I would go to their pub night every Wednesday. I would hang out. And this one Wednesday, I decided to drive there. And I drove. I didn't have really any so many beers. I had maybe two beers or so. And around two in the morning, I decided it's time to go home. So I wanted to go home. I drove myself home. And uh, again, I'll be a little bit blunt here. I just wanted to get home and just get stoned and go to bed. That was all that I cared about. So naturally, I'm driving a little bit fast. I get pulled over for speeding. And this officer said that he could smell some alcohol on my breath. So first he asked me to walk a line. Now, if I did not have a broken foot, I would have been able to walk that line no problem. And I would have got away. No problem. But because the state of my foot, and so I got these casts, these big crutches, it was instead the breathalyzer. And I blew a .09, so .01 above the legal limit, alcohol that I was allowed to have in my system. So by no standards drunk, especially for a, an individual that would drink nearly every day, you know, the tolerance goes up. So I was totally fine. But the law says that was very... That was a no-no. So what happened after these three events was that I could not go anywhere. I had a DUI. I had a broken foot. I moved away to a town where I knew no one. And for the first time in my life, I was absolutely alone, totally alone. And that was so painful in the beginning. And initially, my nights were spent... They were spent in ways not worth mentioning. But at some point, I decided it would be better to find something to do. Even if I could not do what I wanted to do in life, I decided there would still be something I could do. And as soon as I made that decision, my father came back from the ashram and he started to introduce me to basic yoga. 
basic asana, basic meditation, basic pranayama. And I grew very attached to these practices purely because I was so alone. I had nothing else. And essentially, all of these things happening, I was just primed to accept these practices in a very profound way. And so that was my introduction to yoga. And ever since then, that's purely been part of my life. This was an injury that I was supposed to not be able to recover from. And within a year, I was, again, running long distances, even starting to get back into basic gymnastics-type movements. So the, the transformation, the healing that took place, for me, it was tremendous. It was very powerful. And there was no other option at that point. I knew what I would do with the rest of my life. Well, I appreciate you being blunt and candid with um, with going back to your previous um, samskaras, if you will. Um, that, and I think that's so important, you know, to to have created an environment, a context, uh, a background where you were really ready to receive the teachings that you got. One, because maybe you wouldn't have even given it a chance. And two, because it gave you a sort of a bottom, like a, a valley in your journey that you could rise up from and see the profound healing effect. So yeah, super cool. Um, and I, I love that story. Thank you for sharing. Rama, can you take us back to this teacher training that you've been um, working out with your partner, Shakti Bird? Tell us about that and um, maybe what prospective students might expect. So this is a Hatha Vinyasa-based yoga teacher training. And this program is essentially uh, the brainchild, the culmination of our backgrounds in functional movement, functional anatomy. It's all of the teacher trainings that we have been a part of up to date, both as students and as guest teachers. It's essentially a fusion of everything that we feel is of value within the yoga industry. And you can think of it in the modern education system, for example. There's so much information there that is in all honesty, useless. So many things that were taught in schools, we're never going to use that information unless you have a very specialized type of occupation. And in the same way, you know, a lot of the future trainings that we've been experienced, there's a tremendous amount of information that's unnecessary, especially in a 200-hour context. The idea is to give people just the tools, the methods that they need to do two things. One, become as good a person as they can be, not even a yoga practitioner, as good a person as they can be. And two, is start to feel comfortable sharing those things with other people. Because for Shakti and myself, we are not, uh, we're not with Yoga Alliance or anything like that. There's no body like that. But we have a tremendously high standard for who we allow to move fully through our programs. The standard for graduation, it's, I shouldn't say it's tremendously high because if you come there and you're sincere and you put in the work, chances are you're going to be very successful. But the idea is that we're not going to stand behind any people who are not capable of teaching a very basic class. So the idea is that you come away from this training being able to teach the becoming balanced vinyasa flow. It's essentially a set sequence that is extremely easy to expand from. So my own personal experience teaching yoga, going to Shivananda, this ashram in the Bahamas, I had a set sequence, sun salutations, 12 basic asanas, some pranayama, some meditation. And this sequence I learned I memorized, and from that sequence I was able to build, to kind of extrapolate, you can say. So especially for new teachers, it's important to have a foundation that you can work out from, as opposed to trying to create everything yourself in the very beginning. It's very challenging. 
So they'll leave with essentially a very strong, deep-rooted understanding of how to share these things in a proper, effective way. This will be the main purpose of our trainings. Okay, very cool. And you mentioned earlier that um, you're primarily teaching Hatha Yoga Asana, but you mentioned some other subtler practices. Is that something that's covered in your training? That is something that's covered in brief in the 200-hour training. We will also be running 300-hour programs in the not-too-distant future. However, these 300-hour programs, they will require a successful graduation in the 200-hour. Mm -hmm. So we have Becoming Balance, the 200-hour, and Beyond Balance, the 300-hour. You can say in a nutshell, Becoming Balance, the 200-hour, is all about you as a person and as a teacher. The second session, Beyond Balance, this is the 300-hour, this is purely about you as a practitioner. You get some more things for teaching, of course, as well, but this is where we really dive into practices that are tremendously your own personal development. Well, you know, if you look at it the way that you sort of described earlier, where new teachers need a framework to build from, then that makes perfect sense. Because as a teacher, once you have that framework that you can fall back on, after that, building on it is based primarily on your own practice. So to develop your own practice is to feed your teaching, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we've spent quite a few years now just planning this entire program back down to its very fundamental essence. I say we are finally ready. Finally ready, yes. Um, I do have another question, because you mentioned earlier that uh, in the ashram you were being groomed um, for traditional brahmacharya. So what what happened with you meeting Shaktibird? How did that all come about? <laughs> it's a good question. So the uh, ashram where I was, or you can say the country where I was, in the Bahamas, they will allow someone with a Canadian passport to stay there for three months maximum. And after three months, you have to make a visa run. You have to leave the country for at least a night, and then you can come back. And so I used the time, I used the opportunity to go teach some international workshops somewhere. So I decided I would do one of these programs in Boulder, Colorado. Now, I did not decide to do it because she was living there. That was just a happy coincidence. But I went out of the ashram. I taught this program and met this very strange person, this very unusual being who had funny hair and a wonderful asana practice and the capacity for so much more as well. And so we grew close during this workshop. Uh, we stayed in touch a little bit through Instagram. And I went back to the ashram. But at some point, I was hired or uh, brought on by Jaya Prada Radhika to be a guest teacher in her 200-hour uh, yoga teacher training in Bali. And Shakti Bird decided that she would go to that program as well. And although this is something that I don't necessarily condone, yeah, dating one's teachers, <laughs> I should mention that my father is actually married right now to someone who was formerly one of his students. So I think it runs a little bit in the family. Uh -huh. <laughs> but she came to this program and then afterwards uh, she dropped everything that she was doing and she moved to the ashram. She moved to the ashram in the Bahamas to stay with me there. Wow. And uh, Yeah, so that was where, of course, I very dramatically started to shift away from this whole brahmachari idea. <laughs> and it, I shouldn't say it like that. It was, um, there are so many things about my foundational practice, about Shivananda Yoga, that I love. And there are also many things that I will do differently and that I do do differently. Right. And so for me, having another person that we could share in this beautiful life with in a very kind of complete way, both also bringing 
different things, important things to the table. Um, I, I very much loved spending time with Shakti. There should be no D at the end of that. I still do to this day. Enjoyed spending time with Shakti. And she wasn't necessarily a contributing factor into my wanting to leave the ashram. You can say that decision was already made, but she just helped me make it a little bit sooner than I likely would, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Well, I can also relate to your experience because my wife, Veronica, was one of my teachers too uh, before I was teaching yoga. So <laughs> we're in the same club. Okay, very good. <laughs> All right, Rama, apart from getting your message out on this podcast, what are you doing today to live your dharma of sharing? Yeah, so today is 9 uh, or about 10 p.m. now in Cairo. And earlier we had a very fantastically relaxing day, which is not normally something that we get to do. So relaxing day for me is uh, to wake up still quite early, I usually spend anywhere between 90 minutes and two hours with my personal seated things in the morning. And this is always the best part of my day. And then Shakti and I went to have some nice breakfast, which again, we don't usually get to do. Normally with how busy we are, we end up eating like around one o'clock, two o'clock. But today we had some breakfast, which was quite nice. And we got to go into a pool as well. Again, something we don't normally get to do. And then we spent basically the rest of the day working with uh, website design and all of these things for Becoming Balanced, which, again, these things we love to do, so they're not really work anyhow. But yeah, the idea was today to relax just a little bit before our programs coming up in Cairo. We have workshop series with, uh, I think the enrollment today reached 45 students for all of our workshop sessions, and so we're preparing some beautiful things for that. It's nice having two people when you have such large groups. I think if it was just me, it would be very, very difficult to control 45 people in a safe way in a handstand class. But yes, thankfully we can work with those numbers nicely. Yes. So I think so we're nice and prepared for the rest of our time in Cairo. Great. Well, what a blessing to be able to travel around the world teaching, uh, something I've had a taste of too. And um, you know, it's one of the best best things about being a yoga teacher in, in my mind is you get to go around and meet different people from different walks of life and share this practice that's truly universal. So good for you and I'm happy for you. That's great. Thank you, Henry. All right. Well, now it seems like the perfect time to move on to the final section of every interview, which I call the prana round. In the prana round, I'm going to ask you six rapid-fire questions and ask you to answer in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Does that make sense? It makes sense. <laughs> you say that with some reluctance, but I think we'll do it anyway. <laughs> All right, number one, in one word, why do you practice yoga? Sense. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Siddhasana. Because of how it allows certain energies to move in certain directions. I like that. What is the single best cue or piece of advice you've ever received from a yoga teacher? Oh, this I have to think about. You see, Henry, I've uh, not taken many yoga classes, to be honest. I think well, it uh, could be something that you learned at the from your teacher at the ashram too. Okay, this was a message from an individual who passed long before I was born, but he told me, "Richness comes to those." who are simple and humble. Richness comes to those who are simple and humble. Okay. Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our listeners. Mm, one book. One book. Although I've never read this book, 
I very much understand the individual who wrote it. So I would recommend Inner Engineering by Sadhguru. Okay. Is yoga for everyone? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Wonderful question also. Can get in touch with me most commonly through my website, danielrama.com. But you can also join the numerous people who enjoy following me on Instagram, which is at danielrama with a little underscore at the end. I also have a YouTube channel featuring a number of free full-length yoga classes, uh, tutorials on hand balances, inversions, basic pranayama. And then there are a number of other online offerings through organizations such as Om Stars, Om Fit, which is an offshoot of Daily Om, and many, many things to come as well. Online, there are many find available to you, but all of the free ones, you can look there for you too. Great. Yeah, yeah I think I, that's I, how you can. I, and I saw yeah. your I saw your program on OmStar's Kino. McGregor was a guest on this show some time ago, and so I've been scoping out the programs on there since then. So that's very cool. Um, looking forward to checking that out myself. Uh, so yeah, Rama, actually that one, Henry. Yeah. That one you can still get for free. Actually, if you click, there's one link on my website. You can get 30 days full access to Kino's full site. If you just click this link and you'll get free access for 30 days. There you go. Okay, I will make sure to put that as a link in the show notes for this episode. So if you're listening, head to the, the show notes and you can get a 30-day trial of OmStars and do Daniel Rama's inversion and handstanding course. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I loved hearing your stories and your perspective on all the philosophy of life, as you so eloquently put it. So thanks thanks for joining me, and I hope we meet someday in person soon. I would love that, Henry. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. If you got something out of this episode, if you like Dharma Talk and want to keep it going, please do me a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I know it's not the most convenient thing to do, but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it. And hey, if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me, you can do that on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. And until then... Keep living your dharma.